The momentum that the first intifada created in the first two, three weeks through the way how the people they organized, they were a leaflet coming by the unified leadership. And this is something achieved in the Palestinian history. It always awakens nostalgia in many of us, even though we didn't live through that period. Palestinian collective action gave everyone a sense of hope. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and this is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Today, we take a look back at the first intifada, which began in December 1987. We'll hear from two journalists, Ziad Abbas from Dehesha Refugee Camp in the Occupied West Bank, who was working as a reporter when the uprising began, and Badur Hassan in Jerusalem, who grew up in the wake of the First Intifada. And we'll hear from Jennifer Bing, who was working in Ramallah as a teacher during that period, and now says she is witnessing an intifada of sorts in the halls of the U.S. Congress. Let's begin with Ziad Abbas of the Middle East Children's Alliance. This is part of a longer interview that you can hear in full on our SoundCloud page. Listen to this. My name is Ziad Abbas Shamrukh. I was born uh, and grew up in the Hesha refugee camp. My family uh, uprooted from two villages, actually. My dad is from Zakaria village and my mom is from Jrash village. And uh, they were uprooted in 1948, and they came to the Hesha refugee camp. And since that time until now, my family is still living in the refugee camp. Um, I'm working with Middle East Children's Alliance, Mecca, in, based in Berkeley. And I am still part of my work. It's connected to, the, to the, our community in Palestine or other communities in uh, Syria, Lebanon, um, and in the Middle East in general. In 1987, I was, of course, I was in the Hesh refugee camp, and when the Intifada was started in the beginning of December, it wasn't something new for us in the Hesh refugee camp because I remember that since I become like almost, I was 15, 14, 15 years. This is part of our daily activities in the Hesh refugee camp. And here I am speaking about late 70s. There are many incidents happened in our refugee camp since that period. And I can say it wasn't something new uh, for the people in our refugee camp because there are certain kind of measures the Israelis, they took and they did in our refugee camp long time, even 10 years before the first intifada. For example, the curfew issue, almost we experienced that since they were, we were children and sometimes we spent long time and in, in, in under curfew, sometimes two weeks, three weeks, and this is end of 70s, beginning of 80s, and until the first intifada started. The second thing that, the second uh, uh, measure that the Israel, they took, it was a closing the, all the entrances in uh, our refugee camp, and it was uh, in 1979. I remember that very well, when they blocked and sealed all the entrances by rocks and some entrances it was by concrete blocking and wasn't possible for us to uh, cross from the camp to the main street. And here I want to describe for the people in the past that the Hesha camp, it, the location of the Hesha camp, it's on the main road between Jerusalem 
and Hebron. So everyone want to cross, coming from Jerusalem, cross Bethlehem, going to Hebron, need to pass in front. It's the only, the main road to Hebron. And there were a lot of activities in the camp where children and youth grew up like throwing stones at the Israeli military cars. And sometimes they were throwing stones at the Israeli uh, settlers' cars when they passed the settlements. Uh, around Hebron. So by closing these kind of entrances, they blocked the movement of the people to cross the, 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 the street. Uh, the second thing, the campaigns, the arrest campaigns, how many people they were experienced jails. And almost I can say, most of the youth, um, our youth and children, the camp, they experienced the prison. Some of them for one week, two weeks, one month, blah, blah, including me. I was a child. They took us as a children. And you we were arrested and at the same time when you go to jail you learn about new things you meet other people etc uh, so we were in 19 in november actually before december and uh, as usual israel is before certain kind of occasion what they call it preventive uh, the uh, security measures they impose curfew and sometimes they arrest people before certain kind of national occasion where the people they take the street protest organized demonstration etc so in november we had two in 1987 we had two uh, main occasions the first one it's bill for declaration it's uh, november 2nd so there were a curfew and there were demonstration even the people they uh, they uh, break the curfew and they go out to the street and the protest and the second one it was um uh, November 29th, it's the International Solidarity Day with the Palestine, with Palestinian. So the people they have, we had our own occasion. And many people, they, the Israelis, they came to arrest many people in that period. They didn't find them in the houses. I know some, some friends, they were all the time prepared. Before any occasion, they prepared their bags to go to prison. They come take them, including my brother, actually. He used to do that. And later, I become the same. I was working as a journalist in that period, and it was the beginning for me to work as a journalist. At the same time, I'm part of the, I'm living in Dehesha refugee camp. So in December, I was in Dehesha, and in that period, Dehesha, actually, we had a military camp, the Israeli military camp in the front of the, of the camp, where you have many military tents, even they have um, a piece of land where the helicopters sometimes they are landed they come to the, our area and you have military patrols all the time and moving inside the camp around the camp 24 hours so in that period the, I can say the spirit how the people in the, in, the, in the refugee camp before the Antifada started as I said we had our own Antifada but we have the community support to each other mm-hmm. For how they support each other sometimes. Even when you want to cross the street, just you check with the people. They are on the roof or in the windows. Do you know where are the soldiers, where you can pass? And usually this kind of military groups moving around the camp, they stop you, they search you. And sometimes they arrest you and sometimes they beat you. Uh, it depends. And this is how the people, they were supporting each other. In that period too, the people, when they build a house, you find two, two gates to the house. Or sometimes you can enter the house, but you, there is, you know, most of the houses in the camp, they have a window open. Still, you can escape from the house, jump to other house. Or through the roof, you can jump from house to house to house. And this is what we call it, related to the intifada culture, our own intifada. The people all the time, they're concerned that when, when youth from the camp, they are um, 
escaping from soldiers, they will have the chance to escape. If they enter the house, they know there is a window. They can escape from the other side of the house. And uh, this is the culture of how we were growing up. But at the same time, we were supporting. They were the community, take care of each other, support, distributing food, sharing uh, uh, whatever you have, resources, etc. <clears throat> so when the Antifada started, it was like a car accident in, in Jabali refugee camp. And the reaction came immediately from other refugee camp like Bar- Balata and I remember and Nablus. And they were... I think his name Rahim Laqlik, he was killed in that period, the second after the, the, the seven people they were killed in Jabalia. And it was like a surprise in the in the way it's how the whole community reacting the first few days. So in our camp it's a daily activities against the settlers, against the soldiers, where the people they were taking there. And I was working at the same time as a journalist where I was reporting all the time. So the atmosphere it was for us before the first intifada, when they usually they impose curfew or something happened inside the camp, usually youth and especially our age targeted, no matter if you throw stones or not, you are targeted as young as youth, all the time the soldiers they target you. The, this is like, usually we used to escape from the refugee camp, where you go to Beit Jala, to Beit Lahem, to Beit Sahur, to Al Khadr, to the villages around Batir. I remember we used to go to sleep in Batir groups. Tens of youth go, and the community there prepared the food for us until the curfew, until ended, we returned back to the refugee camp. What happened with the first intifada, you see the other location, other villages, other towns, they are involved. Uh, the, the feelings, the good feelings we had when we, like when we used to leave the camp and go outside where it's more secure to be in Beit Jala or Beit Sahur or in Batir or Al Khadr, the other villages around us, now it's not there anymore because there are activities there. There are soldiers, they are moving around and everyone is targeted, especially in our generation. And I can say in the first intifada, I was uh, just 25 years old <coughs> uh, in that period. So for us, the other good feeling is we are not alone now. We are not uh, just our refugee camp in the whole area involved in this national struggle. Now, uh, almost every location. And we grew up with this, I can say I was a child, but later we grew up and many people inside the camp, we become an expertise how to deal with the situation, how to organize, how to take care of each other in different levels, health issue, education, care few, how the community. So we were like an expertise in the, in the whole area where other areas, they were approach us to learn and to ask for certain kind of advices and how to organize. So it was amazing uh, uh, feeling. At the same time, the Holy Spirit, you feel high to feel all your community involved in this issue. And of course, the number of the people increasing. I want to highlight a little bit here before the Antifada. In 1985, I said in 1979, they sealed all the entrances in the refugee camp. In 1985, they built the fence, the first part of the fence. Dehesha was known by the fence, the wall, or what you they call it, the wall. So they had the fence. In the beginning of the first intifada, immediately they continued the whole fence to isolate the camp from the main road, Jerusalem, Hebron Road. In 21st, and this is, I remember this day very well, 
as a journalist. I was working as a journalist in the ground there. And this is like the first general strike in Palestine, where 1948 area, all the Palestinian community inside Israel, with West Bank and Gaza, they have the general strike. No one go to work, no one go to school, etc. And this is the first morning when we wake up in the Hesha refugee camp. It was very, very, very cold day. But suddenly we find part of the fence destroyed and fell down in the main street. So the Israeli army, they were, even they were there, even they have the military camp, but youth in the camp, they succeed to cut the fence and destroy part of the fence, not the whole fence. And uh, immediately the response of the Israelis, they were like, I remember the shooting at morning, just for nothing. They were shooting everywhere. They were very angry, very upset. At the same time, it was a curfew too, and they start building the fence again, but this time they made the fence for the two tracks. It was one track, a fence, later, and a fence with barbed wire, etc. They add another track to make it difficult to be destroyed. And to make it, the holes in the fence very thin, so the, the, the youth in the camp, when they use the slingshot, still they cannot throw the stones through the holes. Uh, through the fence. This is our camp at that period. I remember it was, um, even our family, we were living like uh, our house. It was still very simple house and it wasn't easy to feel secure. So all the time you need to change houses where you sleep. And sometimes you change. Even we were working as a journalist, we were targeted and especially journalists. We were targeted where we use you need to change the house and you need to go uh, um, <clears throat> to move from house to house. It depends how the soldiers they are moving in, inside the camp. And you can't sleep. You cannot have like eight hours sleeping unless you are far from the camp. All the time, two hours, three hours, they wake you up, you move to other house. And, and all the houses, I can say most of the houses was open. For us, where you can just relax or have some food or have a cigarette and move to other house. Ziad Abbas talking about uh, his experiences during the first intifada, um, specifically in Dehesha refugee camp in the Bethlehem area in the occupied West Bank. Um, Ziad, can you talk a little bit more about since Israel has uh, began its military occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip and the Golan? It has enacted series of policies aimed at separating the populations geographically, um, politically, um, uh, resource-wise. Can you talk a, a little bit more about the community as a whole coming together, um, whether they were in Gaza, where the Intifada started, in the West Bank, inside 48, um, present-day Israel? How did that community cohesion really uh, solidify and strengthen during during you know the first few weeks and months of the intifada i remember one of the stories actually this is the first few days in the intifada when a group of soldiers we were watching actually and we were hiding in the camp behind the window and we were watching they arrested a the boy he's like 13 14 years old so immediately when someone arrested you find all these women jumping on the soldiers and they catch and they start fighting with the soldiers to release the boy. 
and it was a famous story actually in the camp and this is like they were like 12 13 women surrounding the group of soldiers they want to liberate i say the boy and they stopped and the officer it seems he speaks arabic very well he starts speaking with the women later we find out what was the the whole discussion they released the boy <laughs> without big fight and that soldiers he asked okay you are everyone f- f- uh, he told the women everyone is uh, of you say he's my son he's my son he's my son i will release your boy if i find really who was the real mother an honest way and the woman one of the women told him you want the honest way his mother is not here and this is show you like how immediately everyone in the camp there's certain kind of rule and of course they release the boy and there were many stories like this you there is certain kind of security inside the camp how the people they support each other they release the boy in any way the soldiers they know it will be a massacre if they will not release the boy this is these women will never leave it and it was like this many stories like this inside the camp this is i can say the community by living all this period i can say it was since 1977-78 until the beginning of the Antifada, the accumulation of this experience, and you have a generation they grew up. And I remember in 85-86 when they started the huge campaign for administrative detention. Some of our colleagues, and you know some of them, actually they were arrested, they were the youngest political prisoners. They were 16 years, 15-16 years old, the youngest administrative detainees in that period inside jail. And this is before the first Intifada. So this community later on, it's become like learning. We learned a lot. And I can say in Balata refugee camp, they had almost the same experience. Balata, it was like in the north of West Bank. They were really, really very active, the same, almost like the Hesha. You have Jalazon near Amari. These are the location I can mention. You have Jabalia and Gaza. They were very known. We have many refugee camps. We have 19 refugee camps in West Bank, and you have eight refugee camps in Gaza. But there were certain locations in these refugee camps, they have the experience. And this is how the people, they were learned. And to add to that, they were the universities, they were very active. Bethlehem University, Birzeit University, Hebron University, Gaza, and the same. And the people, they were easy movement. You still can travel, you can go to Ramallah, you can go to Nablus, you still can go, even you can, there is a way, there were no walls, no fences, you can cross the city, sometimes you walk from through the mountains, reach other villages, and you get there, you are welcomed, the people, they open their house, and it was easy, I can say, easy movement, not like right now, we are isolated totally, the Israelites, they try to isolate, but people all the time, they find their own way to reach these kind of areas. So these kind of experiences in the refugee camps, I can say, later on it was you know, like spread out to different uh, communities. And the people, they catch up. The momentum that the first Intifada created in the first two, three weeks. And I can say here, the momentum through the way how the people, they organize. There is a time... They were a leaflet coming by the unified leadership. And this is something, actually, I can say, achieved in the Palestinian history since the beginning, since 60s. First, what achieved the Palestinian revolution was establishing BLO. But what happened after that big achievement, having the unified leadership for the, the first Intifada. 
when they were like example the leaflets distributed in the first uh, intifada it's like the, the the i call it the system with timing Everyone is following, and whatever you have in the leaflet, people they go write it in the walls. So the people they can't see the leaflets, they can read in the walls. Tomorrow or this day to strike from this hour to this hour. So the walls in the refugee camps and the cities and the village became the newspaper, the magazine where they can read. And this is other element can organize the people. One of the things like inspired me and even when I was working as a field in the beginning and I was working with TVs in that period and we were following like for example we had you have the general strike you have it every day uh, all the day it's closed only one pharmacy they keep it open for the people they need medicine or something and you have the daily daily uh, uh, strike start for, for example 12 o'clock there is a sound I still have it in my ears when you go five minutes before 12 you hear all this big doors of the shops that the owners of these shops they start closing their doors coming and you see the whole system the whole street you see these doors and the sound of the doors we we don't have a switch like you here in that period it's big keys very loud and heavy doors from middle and you can hear that closing the first few days after the first leaflet uh, of uh, of the leadership the israel they try to keep the door open you find the owner of the ship no i want to close the shop soldiers try to keep the shop open and be uh, the owner yani the, uh, this is his resource to make money but he want to close this is how much it was the commitment the general strike it's like general strike and the daily strike this is like the main organizer uh, for the people and after that they close and after that you have and sometimes the clashes like the youth take the street at 12 o'clock after everyone buy what they need blah they you find it in different streets in bethlehem for me as one as a journalist i didn't have a car in that period my me but we were like every few journalists we were we were following only ambulances wherever you see the ambulance you follow them you hear bullets you follow from which part and we try to go report etc and it's uh, uh, the community itself at the same time become a journalist i was working in bethlehem press conference uh, bethlehem press uh, office and every morning, I don't need to go to the, these villages to collect the news. The people, they come immediately. Tonight they came, they did this, 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 they arrested these people. They made our job very easy. So to, up, to update the news, you have it all the time. The community approach the media. They tell the people what's going on. And you send them the, the, to the newspaper, to the radios, etc. We didn't have big radios in that period. We didn't have a CN radio. But sometimes even we send it including the Israeli media. Because we were not allowed to have it. Because still we are in that period. The Israelis, they were censoring every letter, every word in our newspapers. And some news, it, the censorship, the military censorship, sometimes they cancel the news. What we used to do, send the news to the Israeli media, they don't have censorship like us. They publish it, after that the Palestinians, they are allowed to translate it. So the Israeli journals, they were very privileged. They take the news in an easy way when they, while they are, because we want this news to be known, the people to know. 
and some our news it be getting it late. But anyway, to speak about journalism under the first intifada needs separate. Uh, <laughs> but the community in that period, I can say, they were playing different kind of rules. People they start organizing committees. It depends how much, like the women committee, the health committee, education committee, uh, uh, national committee, even internal problems. You don't need to go to the Israeli police. Even you don't need the police in West Bank. They were most of them Palestinian, but the high officers they are Israelis. You don't go to them. You go to the national committee. They solve solve the problems. I know many stories in my camp. People sometimes families they have internal problems. It's solved. No need to go. And even sometimes it's very very tough issues like uh, problems happen. The community solve it. At the same time, in Kerfi, you can see. I remember many times late night when, for example, trucks arrive from Golan Heights, coming trucks full of apples supporting the community, or other trucks coming from Nazareth or from even other part of West Bank because the location inside the camp or other towns, villages under curfew, and there were groups, their task only to distribute this food to the houses. And of course, here you have all the data about the refugee camp, how many ch- children and which families they need milk, for example. You start distribute that and from house to house to get this food. And sometimes you have a line of houses connected, like you have 60 families connected in one house. Just you give the milk for the first house, you tell them this is the this family. And you know the milk moving from house to house to house until they get it. To the, uh, this family with children. This kind of, I can say it, it's a spontaneous, it's real, it's not fake, it's organizing, everyone feel the contribution, everyone uh, have high spirit, helped organizing the community. Ziad, because you're a journalist and because you were working as a journalist uh, during the first intifada, I want to um, ask you about the way that the first intifada was perceived in in the, the Western world and, and around the world, for that matter. When we think of the first intifada, we think of the images of uh, Israeli soldiers um, beating and breaking the, the arms um, during the, what was called the breaking the bones policy. Yeah. Tanks and, and kids throwing stones at tanks. Um, can you talk about the imagery uh, and, and the perceptions of the first intifada and um, how, how it was received by the outside world? I, I, I think the first intifada was, um, because it was started spontaneous, in a spontaneous way, and everyone from Palestinian community, they find their own way to contribute to the intifada, no matter who you are, which class you are, which background, which education, which certificate, everyone find their own way. But they were, our focus is to reach the world. We feel like after 1982 and what happened to the Palestinian uh, leadership in Beirut and we as Palestinian community, you see our your land is shrinking, your water resources, the oppression is really very high and shutting you down. And the Israeli policy, like the racism, the discrimination, all these kind of policies, actually the administrative detention, the prisoners, the way how the Israelis are treating the Palestinian people, I can say it less than an animal, how they treat dogs in Tel Aviv and in different locations. This thing, it's came like to bring, first to bring the community together, where we can support each other, cheer together, 
plan together as a community coming together. Second, to approach the world. Hey, we feel isolated. We feel ignored. We feel our rights actually almost illuminated. Israel tried to illuminate with all this kind of support coming from Europe and USA to the Israeli government. So the Palestinian did focus on this popular. People didn't use weapons in that period. The only weapon that the people they used, actually weapons they used, was the stones, the slingshot, and organizing. These are the, the main three weapons that it was used in the first intifada. And organ part of the organizing is how to reach the media, how to reach the world. Because we still believe that the international public opinion is still important. And we try to learn how much the international uh, public opinion played uh, to support other people, especially the South African people. And still, the, the, that period, still the boycott against the apartheid system in South Africa playing a big role in that. And I can say, our our leadership, even the field leadership in the, among the communities, they were well educated, they are aware, they know about other people's experiences. So the image of the first intifada, we try to show it to the people. This is the brutality of this colonial system. It's coming in different kind of ways. It's not just military orders everywhere. It's not just checkpoints, it's not just settlement. It's interfering in every daily needs of the Palestinian people. And to show that through people organizing, taking the streets, they protest. And the, the, the only thing they use is the stones and the slingshot. And in the other hand, the Israeli occupation, they are using helicopters, they are using tanks, military jeep, automatic weapons and not just different kind of tear gas and all this kind of uh, guide of uh, I, I call it like even including the inter uh, legal uh, bullets like dum dum what we call it dum dum bullets which many people many people from my camp they were killed by dum dum so <clears throat> I can say with that the image start changing I remember 1980 we started December uh, 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 <clears throat> uh, 87 and in 1988 where he start having these kind of delegations coming to Palestine and here I will give a credit to Europe more than USA Europe it was very close and sending these kind of groups I remember in that period the Italian they were really very active and this is when they start organizing I remember hand to hand like a, they want to build a bracelet of a human people around Jerusalem to make a bracelet and how the SLS they were uh, 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 how these kind of people came in solidarity to support the Palestinian people uh, uh, in the ground there. They were attacked by the Israelis. Uh, there were many, many of them, they were injured and shot actually uh, in that period. And this has actually changed the image. Like watching, I can say the photos. Uh, me, I used, I used to have a camera in that period. And the camera, it's like the huge thing I used to carry it. And we're especially the Israelis when they impose curfew or they announce this area it's a military zone so the international journalists they can't come even the Israeli journalists they can't come unless they are coming with the Israeli army like the Israeli TV or Israeli radio and usually they report the opposite how they present the Palestinian but I believe in that period the Palestinian they were the Antifada presented the Palestinian different way the Palestinian show that these people, they are the resilient of this community, uh, the Palestinian people, it's show up through the photos, how these Palestinian youth, children, community, women, all of them coming together to challenge the Israeli colonial system. And build up, like the community, despite the Zionist 
propaganda and the Israeli propaganda showing the Palestinian people as a terrorist or they are like and they undermined who we are as Palestinian but later the Palestinian image come the nature of the Palestinian any footage you will take it like in the streets it was enough to show the world this is who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed and this has changed the image the image a lot and later on we realized how much solidarity like we start receiving from all over and for me as a journalist I was working like all the time we were working with international TVs, international journalists to go around. This is why we were arrested. That's why they were arresting us just to throw accusation on us. Just because we were journalists, we can report from areas that the international journalists, they can for you as American, you cannot enter this area. But me, I'm a Palestinian. I can enter this area. We go inside, we film, we take the photos, we interview people, and we give it to the international. This is, I remember in, in, in Nakab, uh, Ansar 3 prison, in the Nakab desert, we, at a certain period, we were over like 60 journalists inside jail. 60 journalists. Like the press corps in the jail. Yeah, inside jail. We were like, even we had... Uh, in that period, we were learning, of course, we had like our own radio station. Radio, I say, just you make like announce in the tent, like the radio. <laughs> this is the program. You feel yourself, you are behind the mic. Of course, no radio in the mm-hmm. prison. But where you continue your work and we try to learn from each other. Everyone was targeted like in that period. And I can say there were certain kind of wake up. Israel's image, it's changed. And Israel, of course, they use this kind of policy. Sometimes the images you have, it can cost you your life as a journalist. The breaking bones footages, which until now it's documented to show how these Israeli soldiers treat Palestinian youth. Or these kind of children standing in front of the, the tanks. Or, for example, these, I, I call it the footages, how these uh, youth in East Jerusalem attacked by sticks on their head. If there was no camera, no one will know about it. But my question is, the differences between that period until now. Israel, they were targeting journalists, targeting cameras. They look at the camera, one of the main, uh, the main enemy for them. Right now, Israel, they do a lot of things in front of the TV and they don't feel shy because still, in the United States until now, they report the same. There were some changes a little bit, but still, it's the same area. And Israel, they don't care now more and more about the international public opinion. They don't care about the immediate image because this kind of immediate image now it's generalized. What Israel did actually through all this kind of experience, generalized, make it normal, this kind of footages. And the rest, they thought it wasn't normal. Anyone watched this? Even some Israelis actually, they were got very angry and some of them actually left Israel because certain kind of images happened in the first intifada. I'm not speaking about many, many. Some few, I know some people, they already left Israel because this kind of images. But now Israel, they do that. They make it normal. And right now you see it almost in many other locations. This is the sad part. Like you see this kind of images and happening by, not just by the Israelis, these kind of images like happened by even other regimes against their own people. And it happens and become like normal and the reaction of the people toward these kind of images, it's, uh, it's not that strong reaction to make it difficult for them to do it again, actually make it normal so they can continue to do it. 
That was the voice of Ziad Abbas of the Middle East Children's Alliance in Berkeley and was just an excerpt of a longer interview that is available in full on the blog post that accompanies this podcast as well as on our SoundCloud page. Be sure to check that out. We're going to take a short musical break and we'll be back with Bador Hassan speaking to us from Jerusalem. You don't want to miss that. Stay tuned. Friedman, you're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. We continue our discussions on the legacy of the first Intifada, which began in December 1987. In the spring of 1989, Palestinian intellectual Edward Said wrote of the first Intifada, quote, faced with such an array of pressure, real threats, actual punishment, the Palestinian will was mobilized and by the end of 1987 had reached the threshold of pain it could no longer endure. The shadow line had to be crossed, and whether or not the crossing actually took place on December 9th, that quickly became the date when, as the Palestinian journalist Makram Mahul reported, fear was forbidden and the stone was taken up. 
From now on, there was to be no turning back as the Palestinian sense of irreversibility took hold. We now turn to Jerusalem, where we're joined by our contributor, Badur Hassan. Badur, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast again. Thanks for having me, Inora. So Saeed was reflecting on the Palestinian will reaching the threshold of pain it could no longer endure as, as the spark that lit the first intifada. As a part of the generation of youth who grew up in the wake of the first intifada through the Oslo process and through the years of the second intifada, tell us about how you see the impact of the intifada still playing out. Uh, you know, 30 years later, what does that threshold of pain look like? Where is it? Uh, I think every two or three years we endure this moment when the threshold of pain is too much to take and a sort of uh, collapse happens and then people take to the streets. It probably happens in different forms, different to what happened in 1987, but people all the time express their anger, their rage, their explosion in different ways, that some of which are similar and are reminiscent of what happened in 1987. Uh, As someone who was born after the start of the first intifada, a uh, part of my memory growing up and listening to stories from people who lived through the first intifada, who were active during the first intifada, it always brings nostalgia to me. I wish I was active then. I wish I had the opportunity to take to the streets then, to be part of the community, of the committees, to be an organizer then. It looked like a much better time to be politically active than it is now, or at least the political atmosphere then or in the social atmosphere was much more open and much more diverse than it is now and the entire Palestinian political landscape was different because it was uh, first and foremost probably one of the very first occasions when such a big popular uprising happened inside Palestine probably for the first time since the revolution of 1936. Of course, there were events, important events like Land Day in 1976, but for such a significant event to happen over many years, uh, this was probably the first time. So this is why it always awakens nostalgia in many of us, even though we didn't live through that period. And we wish we had the opportunity to live there and to experience what uh, the previous generation experienced. And especially when you get the chance to talk to people who were active then and who all the time compare the days of the first intifada to what happened after the debacle of the Oslo process and then the entirely different landscape of the second intifada and afterwards and they are always disillusioned but whenever they talk about the first intifada they you feel the glint in their eyes and you feel that it was something special for them so obviously i would have loved to be part of of that uh, uprising or at least not just to be witnessing it A major iconic foundation of the First Intifada was political unity, of course, along with mass solidarity actions, general strikes, organizing of the workers, a sense of universal involvement throughout each refugee camp, each village and town and city. Um, And this cohesion between communities that Israel has always tried to separate. Uh, Looking back today, what do you think are the most important lessons from the First Intifada? And where do you think those kinds of mass popular struggles can be? can be found today, 30 years later. 
there was one song actually because what um, some one part that distinguished the first intifada was the variety of songs which are probably similar a little bit to the corridos in the Mexican revolution because they describe tell the stories of the first intifada and one song described this unity by saying that we as youth uh, are taking to the streets in the city in the camp and in the village as one and they uh, stressed this unity and this unity was not just across political lines. Obviously, there were different faction, uh, factions participating. It was also on the way that uh, women and men, peasants and urban people and people of all walks of lives were felt that they could be active and that they could be participating. But there was also a significant dimension of class consciousness and a gender uh, dimension mentioned to it as well because there were an increasing number of women women were acting both as the foreign ministers because they were participating and organizing outside their homes but because of the huge and mass number of arrests that targeted uh, the men uh, during 1987 in particular so women also had to lead their homes so they had to take on this double uh, role uh, both inside their ho households and outside and this is something that uh, uh, was a bit lacking during the Second Intifada because uh, the nature of the uprising, it was overwhelmingly armed. Of course, there were both armed and popular struggle in during the First Intifada, but the popular uh, element was very apparent, which was not that uh, significant during, let's say, the latter years of the Second Intifada. Uh, so this was one significant difference, and this is one significant uh, element that we would like to see again happen, to see more people participating, popularly organizing, not just uh, uh, occasional or sporadic movements in the street. Uh, we could also learn from the way people organized horizontally in committees, uh, whether this is it is possible to repeat what happened then uh, is remains to be uh, seen. The nature of the political landscape now and then is uh, arguably different, is very different. So while we should obviously learn from what happened in 1987 and draw lessons and important experiences and remember that we could organize like this, we could organize mass campaigns of civil disobedience, we could organize horizontally, we could build committees from the bottom up, we should not copy what happened in 1987. We should look with uh, an attempt to learn and to discuss uh, opportunities for the future, but we, could, we must be aware that we don't treat uh, 2017 or 2018 like we treated 1987. So this is, this is the problem probably of nostalgia because we all the time we ask, is it possible to do it again? Well, we probably don't have to do it again. We just have to learn from the lessons and from the experiences and try to adapt them to our present and future and go on. It doesn't have to be the same model, but it can be a model inspired by the experiences and the movements and the lessons that we gathered and collected and accumulated during the first intifada. 
That's the voice of our contributor, Badur Hassan. Uh, Badur, you're in Jerusalem where people continue to resist uh, accelerating colonization by Israel and violence by Israeli settlers and soldiers, as well as the recent declaration by the U.S. president claiming that the city is recognized by the U.S. alone as Israel's capital. Uh, Since Trump's declaration, Israel has been rounding up hundreds of Palestinians, including prominent political activists and community leaders, in mass arrest and detention campaigns across the occupied West Bank, including East Jerusalem. Can you talk about the ongoing tactics by the Israeli army to target and attempt to silence popular protests and the similarities between what we're seeing now and what we perhaps saw during the first intifada? Uh, in terms of the tactics, they're uh, different. They're, they're, they use different tactics. Uh, we should probably first talk about surveillance before everything. Let's say on Tuesday, they installed new surveillance cameras around Damascus Gate. Uh, surveillance, it's obviously seeks to scare people from going to protests and from attending protests, uh, but it, it's mainly a factor of intimidation. They are fully aware that people will continue to stream and attend protests, but on the other hand, they want to show who is on control. This is one tactic that probably was not that used during the first intifada because technology was different back then. But now surveillance is massively employed by the occupation forces in order to intimidate and scare people. And another factor that's tactics that is being used is mass arrests, Uh, arrests of people who are politically active, arrests of people who participate in protests. Mass arrests have targeted both Jerusalem and the occupied West Bank, uh, not just targeting political activists, but targeting residents who participate in protests. Uh, it's a, one, one boy was just chanted Palestine. He was in, in, around Damascus Gate. He was chased and they detained, the Israeli occupation forces detained him. Kids as young as 10 can be arrested just for saying Palestine or for raising a flag or for confronting Israeli occupation forces. And in fact, the Fear of arrest has been a major element in scaring some young men from participating in protests because especially if you live in Jerusalem, the the possibility of being arrested means that you will be uh, uh, separated from from your family. You can be even... Uh, denied or banned from your place of residence for a couple of weeks, even after you are released, and you will remain persecuted even after uh, leaving jail. So some people try to stay away from protests precisely because of fear of arrest. Uh, Another element, and there is important to note that even though we are witnessing an escalation of repression, repression never stopped in Jerusalem. Repression comes in several forms. For example, the fact that Israel has the ability to revoke the residency, uh, the residency status of Jerusalem residents. Since 1967, more than 14,500 Palestinian residents of Jerusalem have lost their residency status. There is also a punitive use of residency revocations, even on basis of collective uh, punishment, in addition to punitive home demolitions that target entire fans of uh, Palestinians who carry out attacks against Israeli occupation forces and settlers. So all of these never stopped, really. They just escalate during repression. Uh, 
we witnessed an uprising in July to reclaim Al-Aqsa Mosque and again the metal detectors that were uh, presented and installed witnessed of arrests. And after that, even after the success of the protests, uh, arrests never stopped. In fact, they reached their pinnacle in October when uh, more than 50 people were arrested from all over Jerusalem, most of whom were arrested from the village, uh, the Jerusalemite village of Isawi. That happened just in one night. So this is a daily reality that Palestinians uh, in Jerusalem face. Sometimes it gets more attention than others, and this is what we are seeing now. In terms of the echoes of the first intifada, to be clear, first of all, we cannot talk about mass protests yet in Jerusalem. There are small protests that are women-dominated. Uh, there are in the, the form of usually sit-ins in Damascus Gate where people uh, stand or sit on the stairs of Damascus Gate and start chanting. And on Saturdays, mainly, they are try to march to Salah uh, Street when then confrontations ensue with Israeli occupation forces who fire tear gas, uh, mainly who fire sound grenades uh, at protesters. But um, while the, they are not uh, comparable even to the protests that we witnessed in July, there is a level of energy and outrage and people are not just protesting the Trump declaration itself. They are protesting the Palestinian Authority, they are protesting the complicity of Arab regimes with Israeli occupation, particularly the Saudi regime, and they are also protesting the long-standing US policy that has always supported Israeli occupation, and they are insisting on their unity and on the Palestinian identity of the entirety of Jerusalem without distinction of East and West. Uh, we can see there is there are some chants in common between what we the people are chanting now and what used to be chanted during the 1987 Intifada. And amazingly, or probably not, there are women who participated 30 years ago in the first Intifada. They were probably teenagers back then. And it was probably the very first political experience and involvement. They were active in organizing. They were active in protesting. They would probably have to challenge their families in order to be able to go to the streets. And 30 years later, they are also participating participating in the protests in Jerusalem. And when you talk to them, you feel stronger because many people are usually disillusioned, especially the older generation. They say there is no point in keeping in to keep protesting. There is no point in going to the streets that we have tried it and it has failed. So there is no point in repeating what has already failed. But these women gives, give you hope because not just that they've participated 30 years ago, despite the disappointments, despite the disillusionment with the Oslo process and despite all that happened during the 2000 and the beginning of the 21st century, they're still there, they're still protesting, they're as steadfast as ever, they're still confronting occupation forces and they probably mix this, these two elements. They bring back the nostalgia, the hope that permeated the Palestinian street during 1987, but they also are aware to the different contexts and they also accept their role as someone with 
with uh, the youth. They don't seek to take their place. They don't seek to teach us what to do or to lecture us. In fact, they are prepared to listen to us, to allow the younger generation to lead the protests instead of dictating their point of view. And this is what's probably the most encouraging thing about what's happening now, is that people are, the, the younger generation is allowed to take things into their hands and that there are people are uh, prepared to listen, not to dictate. That's the voice of Badur Hassan. She's a contributor to the Electronic Intifada, a writer and a journalist and a political activist. Badur, thank you so much. And, um, and we look forward to your next contributions on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks, Nora. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. We're taking a look at the legacy of the first Intifada, which began in December 1987. Our contributor Jennifer Bing of the American Friends Service Committee was in the occupied West Bank when the first Intifada kicked off and wrote the following op-ed for us titled, Is an Intifada Starting in the U.S. Congress? Here's Jennifer Bing. Last month, members of Congress led by Minnesota's Betty McCollum introduced House Resolution Bill 4391, the first in U.S. history that calls for accountability and transparency for U.S. aid to Israel. Within a month of its introduction, 20 members of Congress have co-sponsored a bill that focuses on Israeli violation of Palestinian children's rights. 30 years ago, I witnessed an uprising in the occupied Palestinian territories. Today, I feel like I'm witnessing one in the halls of Congress. Three decades ago, I worked as a volunteer teacher at a Quaker school in Ramallah. I remember that December in 1987 to be full of uncertainty. Israeli army raids, curfews, house arrests, and street protests were part of our daily lives. Each morning, we didn't know if the schools would be opened or closed, whether our students were safe, if stores selling bread or markets selling produce would be open for business, or if a curfew would remain in force. We relied on a transistor radio and our neighbors for news, as this was an era before cell phones and the internet. Little did I realize that I was to witness a popular uprising, later to be named an intifada, or shaking off, against what was at that point two decades of Israeli military rule. I remember how almost every member of Palestinian society participated in this first intifada, predominantly nonviolent resistance to Israeli soldiers occupying towns, villages, and refugee camps throughout the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza. While the iconic images of young Palestinians confronting heavily armed soldiers helped coin the phrase, the children of the stones, the uprising I witnessed was more than a clash of rocks and Israeli army firepower. Palestinians organized through popular committees to provide needed medical and food relief to communities targeted by curfews and military assaults. Community health workers taught people how to bandage a wound, how to counter the effects of tear gas, and how to set the broken bones of children who were victim to then-Israeli Defense Minister Yitzhak Rabin's policy of force, might, and beatings. Women knit sweaters to send to prisoners filling Israeli detention camps, sewed flags to hold protests, 
and worked overtime in hospitals, clinics, and human rights centers to document the daily assaults on Palestinian communities. Agricultural relief committees shared seedlings and encouraged people to plant victory gardens to help sustain long periods of army-imposed curfews. Road signs were taken down to confuse the military tanks and jeeps in an era before GPS navigation. And roadblocks were made out of tires and stones to slow down the Israeli army arrest raids. Teachers opened up their homes to continue classes despite school closures. One teacher I met used his kitchen as a science lab. Another had students study history together in her living room. Palestinian collective action gave everyone a sense of hope. An underground unified national leadership of the uprising managed to write and distribute a daily leaflet that would magically appear on doorsteps each morning. The leaflet would include instructions about curfews and which communities needed support, but also an ongoing account of what was happening throughout the occupied territories. This important daily communication built cohesion and a sense of joint purpose. Despite the real suffering and deaths of so many people during the first Intifada, I felt that the demands for self-determination and statehood and international attention to the realities on the ground for Palestinians would be realized. I left my work in Ramallah to return to the United States where I knew it was important to share what I had witnessed during the first intifada. I remember my first visit to a congressional office in 1989, where I was told that absolutely nothing can be done to stop unconditional support for Israel, despite countless media and human rights reports documenting widespread abuse against Palestinians. In some encounters on Capitol Hill, I was told there are no Palestinians, and that the suffering I witnessed as a teacher was justified because Israel needs to protect itself. Through my role at the American Friends Service Committee, a Quaker organization which began its work in Palestine in the refugee camps of Gaza in 1949, I helped organize numerous visits of Palestinians and Israelis to meet members of Congress and their staff, but repeatedly was told we can do nothing due to domestic political considerations. Like many others in the movement for peace and justice, I had given up hope in change coming from our elected leaders. Instead, I worked with others to build greater understanding in communities across the United States. We held events on college campuses and in houses of worship using popular culture traditional and non-traditional educational methods. We organized speaking tours, art exhibits, film festivals, and book readings. We wrote letters to the editor and met editorial boards, spoke on radio shows and television newscasts, and produced documentaries and billboard ads. We organized delegations to the West Bank and Gaza Strip, and more recently engaged in economic activism through boycott and divestment campaigns. I witnessed the growth of our movement to include more organizations, faith communities, and a broader cross-section of U.S. society 
responding to the Palestinian call to support their efforts for freedom, justice, and equality. A few years ago, the American Friends Service Committee joined colleagues at Defense for Children International Palestine, an independent child rights organization based in Ramallah, to explore the possibility of developing congressional allies to help change the uncritical support for Israeli military occupation. In the context of failed peace processes and diplomatic overtures, escalating violence and continual expansion of settlement colonies, Palestinian children, who represent nearly half of the population in the West Bank, are subjected to widespread and systematic abuse including torture and solitary confinement in the Israeli military detention system. To my surprise, on our advocacy visits on Capitol Hill, we found a few members of Congress who were open to hearing about and taking a public stand on the human rights of Palestinians. Unlike three decades ago, members of Congress read with interest the human rights and media reports documenting the abuses of Palestinians by the Israeli authorities. Instead of dismissing the experiences of those living under military rule, elected officials began to ask, why is this happening? How is this in Israel's security interests? They began to question why two sets of laws exist in the same territory with rights based on one's ethnicity. When presented with videos capturing the Israeli detention and arrest of Palestinian children, some as young as 12 years old, members of Congress asked, why am I not aware of this happening? And is this being done with U.S. taxpayers' annual $3 billion in military aid? In 2015, the first year of our grassroots educational and advocacy campaign Israeli military detention, no way to treat a child. 19 members of Congress sent a letter to U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry stating their concern for the abuses of Palestinian children's rights. A year later, 20 members wrote a second Dear Colleague letter asking President Barack Obama to appoint a special envoy to hold Israeli and Palestinian leaders accountable to their obligations under universal human rights norms. Each year of our campaign, the concern for human rights and calls for accountability for U.S. assistance to Israel have grown. Last month, in the days leading up to the introduction of House Resolution 4391, the Promoting Human Rights by Ending Israeli Military Detention of Palestinian Children Act, we watched the extensive networks of U.S.-based activists call on their elected officials to publicly speak out for the rights of Palestinians. In the first week, 10 members of Congress signed onto the bill that requires the Secretary of State to certify annually that no funds obligated or expended in the previous year by the United States for assistance to Israel have been used to support the ill treatment of Palestinian children detained by Israeli forces from the occupied West Bank. A month later, the number of co-sponsors has doubled. Perhaps it is too soon to say that an uprising on Palestinian human rights is taking place in Washington. But for certain, 
we are beginning to shake off the silence that typically existed when calls for accountability were asked of members of Congress. In 2018, we will continue to mobilize for change in U.S. policies, continue to document and share the experience of Palestinians and their Israeli supporters who work to end decades of military rule and injustice. We will continue to be inspired by the creativity and resilience of those who shake the powers, maintaining an untenable status quo. That was Jennifer Bing, director of the Palestine-Israel Program for the American Friends Service Committee in Chicago and co-leader of the No Way to Treat a Child campaign. You can find her op-ed is an intifada starting in the U.S. Congress on electronicintifada.net. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>